Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Strategy Skills Podcast. My name is Chris Safarova. I am your host. I'm a founder and CEO of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. Joining us today is Frank Cespedes. Frank is a senior lecturer of business administration at Harvard Business School. At Harvard, he teaches entrepreneurial marketing, heads the executive program on linking strategy to sales, and also teaches in the honor president management program for CEOs. He has written for numerous publications, including Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, and is the author of six books, including his latest book, which is called Sales Management That Works. Frank, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Christina. It is my pleasure to be here. Frank, before we get started talking about your work, Let's talk a little bit about what you have been doing. Can you share with us your story? Well, uh, my uh, background is not uh, particularly uh, exotic. I um, got my uh, doctorate, uh, was uh, sort of your standard issue professor at um, Harvard Business School, made my way up the hierarchy over the course of 10 years. And then I left with some others. Uh, We started a firm, a professional services firm. I ran that firm uh, for 10 years. And uh, when you do that, when uh, you've got to meet payroll every month, you uh, develop a renewed respect uh, for sales. Um, We got lucky with the business. I could spin this a different way, but it was dumb luck. We sold at exactly the right time. Uh, Harvard called me back up and said, how'd you like to come back and be a professor? And that's what I've been doing again for the last uh, eight years. Frank, and how you became so interested in sales? Well, uh, my research always uh, focused around uh, companies, go-to-market, customer acquisition activities. Uh, My very first book some years ago was about uh, distribution. Uh, From there, I branched out into other areas. And um, as I said, when you run a business, you you really pay attention uh, to uh, customer acquisition, and that just renewed Uh, my interest, and I continue to do research in the area. Frank, business is always changing, and there is data to support that the rate of change is accelerating, and pandemic accelerated the changes we are experiencing even more. What is changing as it relates to sales? Well, the most important thing about selling uh, is and always has been the buyer, not the seller. Uh, who buys, why, and how. And that's where the big changes uh, have occurred. And by the way, the pandemic has simply accelerated trends that were already in place before a coronavirus. Uh, And essentially what's going on is that digital and online technologies 
are in fact making a big impact on buying processes and as a result, selling requirements. We are living through a sustained data revolution. This will continue uh, throughout our careers and throughout our lives. And that is also making a big difference in how people buy and therefore uh, how people need to sell if they're going to do that effectively. And it also affects the careers of uh, people who uh, are in uh, the sales and marketing profession uh, as well. So I think th those are the big uh, changes, Chris. What data and online technologies are doing to buying? Frank, and why another book on sales? What was your motivation in writing this book? And who is your book targeted at? I had two motivations uh, in writing this book. Uh, the first one is uh, fundamentally a professional, uh, intellectual motivation. Of all the activities in business, sales is by far the most context specific. Now, when I point this out to executives, they tend to nod in agreement and then they forget it. But selling software, is different than selling capital goods, which is different than selling professional services. Selling five, six, seven year license software is different than selling so-called software as a service. Sales is also uh, different depending upon where and to whom you're selling. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America or Asia or the Middle East, et cetera. So it's very context specific. But for some reason, sales is also that area of business where people, including I might add senior executives and consultants at big strategy consulting firms, it's that area of business where so many people feel comfortable making these broad, huge generalizations that are usually unsupported by any empirical data beyond what in academia we would call n equals one. When I sold for Oracle, when we invested in PayPal. So after 30 years of doing you know, quite a lot of research in this area, running a company, uh, working with literally hundreds of companies around the world on sales, marketing, and strategy issues, I wanted to write a book that says, this is what research does and does not tell you about this core activity in business. And I think this was my second motivation. I think this is a particularly good time for a book like that. Because as I said earlier, there is no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that online technologies and the data revolution are changing buying and therefore marketing and selling requirements. But again, my reading of what people say about that, and for that matter, the many predictions you're hearing about, you know, so-called new normals after the pandemic, uh, my reading is that uh, they simply misunderstand the managerial implications of what's going on. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, set the record straight, so to speak, about that as well. Absolutely. And thank you for writing this book. It's a very important area and it can be managed so much better and so much value is lost because it's not managed well. There is a such a thing as stars at sales, but stardom is not very portable. 
the variance in individual performance in sales is very wide, as it is in most creative occupations like computer programming or arts. The best people is not just a little bit better, but they are significantly better, maybe 100, 200%, sometimes much more. People call it 80, 20-year-old, 20% of the sales force generates 80% of sales. A lot of performance is organization-specific. It's not only an external client relationship, it's also about an internal relationship. People hire a rock star from, let's say, a large tech company, and somehow they do not perform as well because they have to recreate those networks they used to have in the prior company, and that's not easy to do, and it takes a lot of time. So stardom is not easily portable, and you have to grow your own stars. What is your advice on growing your own stars? Well, I mean, <clears throat> thank you for reading those excerpts. That's exactly right. Um, you know, stardom, there are such things as stars in sales. Uh, the data here is very definitive and consistent. As you uh, mentioned, the uh, top 10, 20% in most sales forces are not just a little bit better than the average. They're often three to 400% better than the average uh, in terms of sales. Um, I think what when you're talking about developing people in sales, you start with who you hire. And here, I think it's very important uh, for uh, people to understand that hiring in sales presents challenges that simply do not exist to anywhere near the same extent in other business functions. For example, if you want to hire an engineer, uh, you can go to a school and it's a little bit like walking into a food court. You know, what are you interested in? Electrical engineering, chemical engineering, civical engineering. Uh, if you want to hire someone in finance or accounting, you can find people who majored in those subjects. The same is true about computer programmers. But the last time I looked, which was about three years ago when I started this, uh, started writing this book, of the nearly 5,000 colleges and universities in the United States, less than 300 even offered a sales course, let alone a sales program. What that means is that the vast majority of people in sales, and again, the data here uh, is, is pretty um, eye-opening, more than 50%, more than 5-0, more than 50% of college graduates, no matter what their major, whether it was music or business administration, wind up working in sales for some part of their careers. But notice their educational priors do not prepare them. This is a line of work where the vast majority of people start out knowing virtually nothing about what they're gonna get paid for. So it's an area where you've really got to pay a lot of attention to hiring because if you look at exit interviews in this area, by far the most common reason for someone's lack of success in sales is that they were a poor fit for that particular sales job in the first place. And the reality is that hiring in sales is tough and very common hiring practices make a tough job unnecessarily tougher. Now you asked why do, why do you think it is that uh, most um, 
uh, colleges and universities don't teach sales. By the way, this is one of the areas where the United States, as bad as it is, is better than almost any other country in the world. We actually pay more attention to this mm -hmm. than any other country in the world, and yet uh, that's the data. I think there are a couple of reasons uh, for that. One is just the way things work, uh, at least historically in higher education in America. Sales is considered trade school stuff, and uh, most uh, uh, colleges and universities run away from that. The second reason is the supply side problem. I mean, sales is a very, very interesting area, both intellectually and behaviorally. If you're really gonna teach sales, you have to know something about economics. You gotta know something about marketing and buying processes. You gotta know something about persuasion, et cetera. It's inherently cross-disciplinary and that is not what American higher education is set up to be. American higher education uh, depends on specialization. And then the third reason, I think, gets me back to one of my uh, original comments when you asked why I write this book. Sales is very, very context specific. And because sales depends on buying and because buying changes, it's also an area that's constantly in motion, constantly changing. So I think what a lot of um, educational institutions find is that even if they set up programs in this area, they are soon out of date because of changes in the market. So it's, it's an area where companies, as you said earlier, have to grow their own. And they do, they try. Uh, companies spend 20%, 20% more per capita on sales training than they do in any other area of the business. In fact, if you add up, this is what you'll see in the book, if you add up the numbers for most companies, the amount of money they spend on training, uh, the amount of money they spend on hiring in sales, the turnover in sales, that number annually is often as big or even bigger than their biggest project capital expenditures, but it doesn't get the same rigorous attention as you know, building a factory or buying software does. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complex issue, but if you're interested in strategy, you better learn about it because for the majority of companies around the world, the sales force is the major vehicle by which they try to execute their business strategy. So someone who uh, talks to companies about strategy and doesn't have a good grounding in sales uh, is not necessarily delivering value. You mentioned that 50% of people who graduate will end up working in sales in some capacity. And it is so true because often it doesn't, it's not called sales, but it is some kind of business development role. So for example, even in consulting, a partner, they are basically a salesperson, even though we are not called them that, this is what they do. This is their primary role to keep the current clients and to bring in new clients to support the pyramid, all the people underneath them. I was wondering what advice could you give to our listeners, given that they need to have a very strong skill set related to sales? What yeah. should they do to train themselves, to develop themselves in that area? 
well, first again, you're right. I mean, uh, and this is actually one of the misunderstandings and I think one of the myths that um, uh, people are currently propagating uh, as a result of the pandemic. The reality is the number of salespeople in the United States has consistently increased throughout the 21st century, even as the internet has expanded in scope, bandwidth, etc. It is simply not true that um, you know e-commerce or digital technologies are replacing salespeople. And as you point out, that number, which comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is almost certainly vastly underestimated because we are, like most industrialized nations, we're primarily a services-dominated economy. And in a services-dominated economy, millions and millions of people who do business development for a living, you know, a managing director at Goldman Sachs, a partner at McKinsey or Bain, they're not called salespeople for reporting purposes, but as you point out, business development is what they do, all right? Now, your question is how, you know, someone who recognizes that, uh, how do you get better at that? Again, start from the basics. It's very, very context specific, and also understand how adults in general learn, and especially salespeople, because most adult learning does not take place in a classroom. It does not take place by reading a book or if I can say so, by listening to podcasts. Most adult learning takes place on the job. It's very task oriented. So the first thing is to understand what are the important tasks in business development in the particular occupation that you are in, that's number one. The second element of adult learning, and this is especially true in sales, is um, modeling behavior. That's the term that the uh, learning theorists use. Um, how do salespeople learn to get better? Well, they go to training programs, but most of their learning occurs by watching the best of their peers do what they do. I watch you and I say, you know, the way you uh, dealt with that price objection, that was very, very smart. I'm going to do that. The way you framed the value proposition, that's clever. I hadn't thought about that. And really part of the job of companies and part of the job of leaders is to create processes and forums that can accelerate that process of peer learning and modeling behavior, and recognize the third element of learning here. In sales, you really pay attention to the relevant information when you need it. And what that means is it's you, you pay attention usually on your way to making a sales call or during the actual sales conversation. And this is an area where technology is increasingly the smart company's friend. This is an area where there are more and more technologies that allow for that just-in-time on-the-job learning, and uh, companies should be taking advantage of it. This is so important. 
And we actually tell our clients and customers often how important it is to find really good role model and someone who will be willing to teach you. It's about finding a star that will be willing to teach you. And this is the best way to learn. Well, but again, that gets us back to hiring because, um, you know, those stars in the sales force, whether or not they're willing to teach, if others have opportunities to watch them, they're not only generating sales, they're in effect disseminating best practice throughout the organization. So there is a multiplier effect there. Frank, do you not find it that you may have a star that you can observe from afar, but unless you know the sequence of steps they take and why, you're only going to learn a fraction of what you could have learned if they took the time to explain to you? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think that's true. It's always better to have someone explain it to you. But I want to question the premise uh, behind uh, behind your statement, because I I honestly don't think it's true to sales reality. Um, The the reality in sales, uh, you know, it's like someone said to me uh, early in my career, he said, Frank, if all customers sound the same to you, don't try to make a living in sales, all right? Be a plumber, you'll you'll make more money. There's a lot of truth to that. During the course of a week or even a day, um, you know, consulting is a good example. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are lots of companies that wanna be more digital, that have issues in operations or whatever. But as I think good consultants recognize Each of those companies is different because of their organization, their strategy, their situation. And what a good business developer does is A, first recognize what the differences are and adapt. And that, in fact, is what that top 20% of salespeople consciously or unconsciously are able to do. So, yes, it helps to have someone explain it to you. But there is, there's very rarely a single recipe that works, even in the same sales force, even in the same market. So uh, while, while explanations can be helpful, picking up a few things that make a difference selling that product in that market in the current competitive conditions is worth a great deal. Definitely. It's better than nothing for sure. We earlier spoke about companies spending 20% more on sales than any other function. If you add up the cost of hiring, training and development, compensation, that number will be as big as some of the capital expenditure decisions. You spoke about it earlier, but it really gets as much attention as capital expenditure decisions. How do you think leaders need to adjust their thinking as it relates to managing sales within organization? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's an issue that's, um, that's getting bigger. Let, let, me, let me explain. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, if you look at the global 1000, right? Over the last 25 years, on average in those companies, the number of people reporting to the CEO has doubled, twice as many. But then if you ask yourself, who are these people? 
Where do they come from? What were they doing before they became senior executives? Very few of them were actually general managers in the sense in which we use that phrase at Harvard Business School. By a general manager, we generally mean somebody who's running a line of business or uh, has a P&L, profit and loss responsibility. The reality is most of these people in the C-suite were and are specialists, the CMO, the, C, um, the CFO, the head of digital, the head of data analytics, regulatory, legal, uh, et cetera. Now, why is that? It's not as though companies wake up in the morning and say, boy, let's be bureaucratic. The reality is business is more complex. Again, there is a data revolution that's been going on for years and will continue to go on. Being a good chief marketing officer today is much more complex and data-driven than it was even 10 years ago. The same is true in sales, operations, finance, et cetera. But the reality is that the C-suite increasingly looks like a discipline-based faculty meeting at a university. And fewer people than ever before have made it to the C-suite without a prolonged background in marketing and sales, customer contact. And the reality in many companies, and I sit on boards and I, I see this, the reality is that many senior executives don't know the right questions to ask about their sales models. And that's a big deal. Uh, if you're running IT, if you're the uh, CFO, you don't need to be a good sales manager. In fact, you'd probably be a terrible sales manager. But as a senior executive, you do need to know the questions to ask about this core activity if you're going to do capital budgeting effectively, if you're going to do digital transformation effectively. And the reality is many of these people are out of touch with uh, what is going on there. So that, that, I think, is where one starts. You start by making sure that you've got the information you need to do this and that that information is relevant today, not yesterday. Frank, we spoke about top 20% of the sales force generating 80% of results. I was wondering in your research, what is it that top 20% are doing? that the rest are not doing. And, and I know it's difficult to answer in general terms, but if you could give us any advice on that. Well, I mean, first, let me emphasize this again, because um, uh, uh, I can't say this often enough. Sales is very context specific, and yet it's an area where people want to generalize. And what they come up with is stereotypes, right? The stereotype of that top 20% salesperson is, you know, somebody in a plaid suit who's got a lot of jokes, who can tell, um, uh, you know, who can tell stories. And, and that doesn't help. That actually gets in the way. Uh, there's so much research that's been done in this area. And it again and again reaches the same conclusion. There's no single set of personality characteristics that define a high performing salesperson. And for that matter, there's no single set of activities because the activities vary depending upon what you're selling and to whom. 
The second thing I want to point out is that this um, 80-20 rule where the top 20% are so much better than the average is not unique to sales. You'll see this same uh, pattern in most creative occupations. You'll see it in the returns to venture capital firms. The only, you know, it's only the top quintile of VC firms that actually make money for their investors. In the aggregate, venture capital is a terrible investment. Mm -hmm. You'll see it in the returns to movie uh, production companies and uh, Broadway shows. You'll see it in computer programming. Uh, The top um, uh, 1% of computer programmers are orders of magnitude uh, more productive in coding than the average computer programmer. So sales is one of those creative occupations. It's an occupation where you're dealing with the uh, variables of the external world, with change, with a lot of circumstances. And you know some people are just much better at that when they fit with the role. So no one thing that they're doing, but again, this is an area where talent matters. Talent has, as in most creative occupations, an outsized impact on actual results. Thank you, Frank. We spoke earlier about why colleges do not have a major in sales. Given how important sales are to an organization, it seems to be such a gap in terms of the training that we have available for young people who are going to university to prepare themselves for the workforce. And do you see it changing going forward that more attention will be given to help people develop the skills needed to become a good salesperson? Especially Um, given that, as you said, 50% of us will need to be in sales in one form or another. Well, I mean, I, you know, uh, as uh, I think it was uh, Oscar Wilde said, uh, you know, uh, predictions are risky, especially about the future, right? Predictions about the past, they're easy. Uh, It's the ones about the future that are tough. So the honest answer is, I don't know. Uh, I do know that the educational Uh, institutions in most countries and certainly in the United States uh, are creatures of inertia. They change very slowly. But if you force me to predict, I do believe you will see more uh, sales and selling courses. And the reason I think is that uh, schools are increasingly under pressure to cater to vocational activities and again, if, if, you, if you look at the uh, number of people who directly or indirectly work in business development, it's an enormous part of the uh, workforce, especially in a services business. Now, the real question, I think, Chris, is will that be a good thing? And my own feeling is that it's going to have mixed results. One is, again, you've got a supply side issue. If you're gonna teach this, you you have to find people who know how to teach it. And and it's a cross-disciplinary activity, unlike teaching programming or finance or uh, a particular uh, form of engineering. Secondly, I think that schools run a big, big risk in setting up sales training programs that as I 
said earlier, are just out of date or obsolete in a few years. I think the real takeaway of four companies is not to rely or wait for educational institutions to do this. You do have to grow your own because at the end of the day, and again, this uh, once I say this, it sounds obvious, but uh, many executives uh, forget this. In business, there is no such thing as performance in the abstract. That platonic ideal does not exist. In business, there is only performance in your organization, selling your products at your price in your market. And that is going to vary depending on your business strategy, the uh, customers and segments you choose to focus on, and so forth. That is ultimately what a salesperson has to be good at. And again, that tends to be context and even company specific. Uh, I don't think you can just wait for some educational institution to credentialize people on generic selling skills. Now, they can help people learn some of the basics, listening, communication skills, things like that. But at the end of the day, companies will still need to spend quite a lot of money and time and attention in developing their own people. I could not agree more with you. Definitely educational institutions can only really give the basics and then the companies have to provide sufficient training and support for people to become strong in this area. You earlier mentioned marketing. Another aspect that is evolving is the relationship between marketing and sales, which for a long time has been competitive, not the most friendly relationship in the world. Marketers think in terms of segments and markets. Salespeople need to focus on specific accounts, specific buyers. And marketing and sales are also becoming more interdependent. I was wondering, could you share with us what your research revealed as it relates to evolving relationship between marketing and sales? Well, that relationship first, as you uh, point out, is becoming more interdependent. And uh, as a generalization, so let me, this is an area where I will generalize. As a generalization, what uh, technologies are doing is allowing sales organizations to do things that as recently as a decade ago would clearly have been in marketing's domain. Um, if you look at so-called SaaS companies, you know, SaaS uh, sales models, software as a service, they're a good example. Uh, they use inbound marketing techniques. They do so-called content marketing and other things to generate awareness at the top of the sales funnel. Um, 10, 15 years ago, that was marketing's job. Do lead generation, hand it over to sales. Now, because of the technology, many sales organizations do that themselves and they do thing, other things that historically marketing was responsible for, white papers and other areas. The real issue, I think, is whether sales organizations know what they're doing when they do those marketing activities. The second thing that's going on, and again, this is ultimately not good news uh, for marketers, 
But uh, if you look at budgets, uh, budgets and sales have increased. Uh, marketing budgets, by and large, haven't increased as much or stay flat. That tells you something about the relative power and influence of those organizations uh, in uh, many, many companies. But ultimately, I think what a well-run company has is that interaction and creative tension between marketing and sales for exactly the reasons you mentioned. Ultimately, a salesperson needs to know everything about their specific customer. Because in the history of business, a market has never bought anything. Only individual customers buy. But at the same time, if you're going to scale a business, you need to develop a brand. You need to develop uh, things that go beyond a series of sales and you need to stay in touch with what is going on with competition and the rest of the market. That historically has been marketing's job and it remains very, very important. Frank, in your work, you are focusing on how the buyer's journey is changing significantly and quickly because of technology, among other things. What used to be a sequential funnel, a sequential process, the old IDA model, awareness, interest, desire, and action is less and less true about buying in most markets. And I don't think a lot of sellers caught up with this change yet. Could you tell us about the transition from funnels to streams? Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, I think uh, even if you think about, uh, if you reflect a bit on uh, probably the way you've bought a number of items uh, in recent years, it illustrates this. The reality is that buyers are both online and offline multiple times during their so-called buying journeys. A good example of this uh, is actually buying an automobile, right? Um, what the data tells us, and by the way, this, this has remained uh, relatively true even during the pandemic. Uh, what the data tells us is that the average US car buyer now spends over 13 hours online researching the purchase. You've probably done this. You know, you go to um, Edmunds.com, cars.com, you get all this information about products, about the wholesale price uh, that dealers have, and so forth. They spend 13 hours researching the purchase and a total of only three and a half hours in the actual brick and mortar dealership. And yet over 95% of cars are bought in the dealership, not online, right? So the, the, um, the, if, you, if you think about the, what, what it means when a buyer buys that way, they already walk in to the dealer knowing about the product, knowing about price and price and product comparisons. The salesperson's job changes. It does not mean that the salesperson disappears. That's a myth. We've already gone through some of the data. Number of salespeople in the United States have increased consistently. But what they need to do has changed. They've got to add more value in that interaction. 
and I want to generalize from this because I think this is um, one of the things that uh, a lot of companies uh, need to uh, wrestle with. And they're very often surprised by the data I'm about to cite to you. If you ask yourself, uh, what was the percentage of total retail sales in the United States that were bought online via e-commerce? And in e-commerce include Amazon, include people uh, who uh, may click online and actually pay in the store, because that's the way the uh, Department of Commerce calculates it. Uh, in the first quarter of 2020, just before the pandemic um, hit, that number was about 11.1%. 11.1%, e-commerce as a percentage of total US retail sales. Now, when I ask executives, what do you think that number was? I typically get estimates from 30 to 60%. In other words, executives are not just a little bit off with this reality, they are orders of magnitude off. Now, what happened during the pandemic? And the most, the, the most relevant data here is the second quarter of last year, 2020, because that was so far, you know, let's cross our fingers, but that was so far maximum lockdown conditions in the United States. Now, obviously, or at least it seems obvious to me that when stores are closed or when they're held to 25 to 50% of their capacity or and when people legitimately feel that if they go into a store, they may catch a virus and die, obviously there's going to be more buying and selling online. But in the second quarter of 2020, e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales, 15%. In other words, even in maximum lockdown conditions, it increased less than 5%, and it has been trending down every quarter since then. That's why the interaction of online and offline in buying journeys is so important. It is not a digital eats physical world. That is a fallacy, but it is and will continue to be an omni-channel buying world, and that has significant implications for marketing, sales, and strategy. And this information you just mentioned was worth listening to the entire podcast for. It is definitely much lower than what people think it is. Yeah, yeah. And again, this, this data is, uh, is public. It's the Department of Commerce data. And if you look at how the Department of Commerce tracks this, uh, I'm very comfortable citing this as what I would call a liberal estimate of e-commerce, because one of the things we've known for decades is that e-commerce penetration, you know, look at Amazon's uh, sales history, is much higher in certain categories and basically de minimis in some others. And if you look at what uh, the, uh, the Department of Commerce uh, how they gather their data, they're actually weighting the categories where e-commerce is higher more than some others. So um, this, uh, you know, the, these numbers are pretty solid numbers. And you're right, uh, people simply overestimate them tremendously. Frank, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners that 
you wish I asked you and I didn't? Um, well, no, I think you've, uh, you've covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, I, I guess I would say uh, one, uh, one last thing, and, and this will be in part a, a plug uh, for my book, uh, but what you'll see in that book, if, uh, if any of your listeners uh, get it, is two chapters about pricing. And this, I think, is a very important topic. Uh, it is central to any strategy. A price is a moment of truth. This is what I learned when I left academia for a decade and ran a business. What I learned is that so much talk in business is basically talk, you know, blah, blah, blah until you get to the topic of price. And then you either get the price or you don't. A price is the area where you test the coherence of a value proposition and ultimately the coherence of a business strategy. And the changes we've been talking about, Chris, about buying, about the data revolution, about the interaction of online and offline during buying journeys also affects price. Now, here's the uh, takeaway about this. Because so many people go to Amazon, I think the assumption that many um, executives and for that matter, consultants have is that the online revolution, the data revolution means a race to the bottom in price. For example, if you go to Amazon, it is no coincidence that when Amazon posts uh, its items, it tends, consumer packaged goods is a good example, it tends to reduce everything to price per ounce. But the reality is that what is going on allows companies more opportunities, not fewer opportunities for value-based pricing rather than cost plus pricing. But in order to do that, you've gotta be able to do two things. One is you have to understand the changing unit of value from the customer's perspective. And secondly, you've got to be more proactive about price testing. There are more and more tools available for companies to do price testing beyond surveys. But there's a surprising amount of inertia about this and again, I would uh, direct listeners to the book, read the chapters, see the examples. This is, again, is an area of untapped value for many, many uh, companies around the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on the Strategy Skills Podcast. How our listeners can get your book and anything else you would like to share? Well, I mean, you can get the book in the regular uh, places, you, you know, the local bookstore, Amazon, Goodreads. Uh, you can go direct to the publisher, uh, depending upon, you know, if you order it for the team, they offer uh, a volume discounts. Uh, all of those are the places where one uh, can get the book. And Chris, I want to thank you uh, for hosting me on your podcast. I I, I like and admire what you do at um, Firms Consulting, and it's been my pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, everyone, again, for tuning in. My guest again has been Frank Cespedes. Make sure to check out his book. It's called Sales Management That Works. We will include information about the book below in the iTunes description, and I'll see you 
all for another interview very soon. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.